the National Archives podcast series, an overview of newly released files from 1981 by Mark Dunton and Simon Demacy, contemporary record specialists. Under the 30-year rule, thousands of newly released files from 1981 have been opened by the National Archives at Kew. The files originate from the Prime Minister's Office, the Cabinet Office and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and give us a fascinating insight into a challenging year for Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government. Mark, I understand that your first example from the 1981 release is, is quite a quirky one. Well, yes indeed, uh, but it does illustrate a wider point about Margaret Thatcher's approach to public expenditure in a very effective way. In Prem 19 stroke 474, we learn that, following a parliamentary written question about the costs of refurbishing accommodation for ministers, a breakdown of spend for each of the government departments was published without consulting the Prime Minister's office. An official in Thatcher's office appears sceptical of the alleged costs for refurbishing number 10, stating, I find these figures impossible to believe. Thatcher voices her agreement, writing, So do I. Referring to the flat at number 10, the cost of bedding is queried, with Thatcher noting, We use only one bedroom, and that she will use her own crockery, and that the price of an ironing board prompts her to repeatedly state in the file, I will pay for the ironing board. And what do you think this tells us? Well, it's certainly amusing, but... On a more serious note, it's a powerful illustration of Margaret Thatcher's values of personal responsibility, thrift, self-reliance and an instinctive antipathy towards unnecessary expenditure of taxpayers' money. And this approach did not stop at home. It was an essential part of her government strategy in 1981. In her memoirs, The Downing Street Years, Margaret Thatcher wrote, I shall never forget the weeks leading up to the 1981 budget. Hardly a day went by without the financial scene deteriorating in some way. The files show that the central government borrowing requirement, the CGBR, was pushed upwards in November 1980 for a variety of reasons, not least of which was a worsening recession. Rising unemployment had increased benefit costs. The revisions to the CGBR carried through into the borrowing requirement for the whole of the public sector, including local government, the public sector borrowing requirement. And we see Thatcher's alarm at the situation in her handwritten comments on a memo, which you can find in Prem 19 stroke 418, from Chancellor Geoffrey Howe, dated the 23rd of January. The PM's comments are addressed to Tim Lancaster, her private secretary for economic affairs. Tim, I cannot just do nothing about this. We appear to have no control over expenditure. I may have to get in someone from outside to investigate. As a general rule, Thatcher often took advice from a number of trusted advisers from outside government. Now when historians and commentators talk about this period, they often refer to the wets Uh, within cabinet. Can you explain who the wets were? Yes. There were many arguments within the Thatcher administration about public expenditure from the winter of 1980 and on into 1981. Some argued the case for sustaining public expenditure and investment to counter the worst effects of the recession. Whereas for monetarists, 
the all-important goal was to beat inflation through tight control of the money supply, which meant cuts in public spending. Members of the Conservative Party who opposed Mrs Thatcher's strict monetarist policies were dubbed wets in political and media circles. And notable wets at this time within the Cabinet included Jim Pryor, Peter Walker, Ian Gilmore and Francis Pym. But when it came to Howell's March 1981 budget, as Thatcher's biographer John Campbell states, despite the experience of the previous two years, the wets were taken by surprise by that budget. This was partly because the contents of it were only revealed to the Cabinet a few hours before Howe's presentation of it in the House of Commons. Perhaps the wets underestimated the determination of Thatcher, Howe and Keith Joseph, as Jim Pryor later admitted. The budget was very tough. It increased income tax by freezing personal allowances and it also imposed heavy tax increases on petrol, cigarettes and alcohol. Nigel Lawson later wrote that to introduce a tax-raising budget on this scale in the depth of the recession was inevitably highly controversial. Thatcher and Howe were going against the mainstream economic orthodoxy of the time. On the 30th of March 81, 364 economists wrote a letter to the Times which strongly criticised the strategy behind Chancellor Geoffrey Howe's budget. Professor Patrick Minford wrote an article, also published in the Times, defending the government's approach. This action by him prompted a letter of thanks from Mrs Thatcher to Professor Minford included in Prem 19 stroke 423. And the cuts in expenditure continued in other areas, didn't they? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, the repercussions of the expenditure cuts continued in the spring of 1981. In January, Thatcher had replaced Francis Pym at the Ministry of Defence with John Knott. This was a signal that the Prime Minister expected greater efficiencies in this area and efforts to reduce the defence budget were redoubled. The Chiefs of Staff were concerned at the extent of the proposed cuts. Prem 19 stroke 416 contains a dramatic letter dated 18th of May to the Prime Minister from the First Sea Lord, Sir Henry Leach. He is disturbed by a proposed cut in the naval budget, which he claims is more than seven and a half billion over the next nine years. He states that this is a quarter of the naval budget. He writes, we are on the brink of a historic decision. War seldom takes the expected form and a strong maritime capability provides flexibility for the unforeseen. If you erode it to the extent envisaged, I believe you will undesirably foreclose your future options and prejudice our national security. Leach's comments, particularly war seldom takes the expected form, seem highly prescient considering that, less than a year later, on the 2nd of April 1982, Argentine forces invaded the Falkland Islands, taking the British government by surprise. So Mark, do the records here help us to understand a bit more about the context of the Falklands conflict uh, the year after? Yes, Tommy. With the benefit of hindsight, they do. 
Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary, also gave a warning which was extraordinarily prescient in a memo addressed to John Knott concerning the defence programme. Carrington was also concerned about the proposed cuts. One of his concerns focused on the planned withdrawal of HMS Endurance, a Royal Naval icebreaker that maintained a British presence in Antarctica and the Falkland Islands area. Carrington warned that it was important to maintain our normal presence in the area, he wrote, as any reduction would be interpreted by the islanders and the Argentines as a reduction in our commitment to the islands and in our willingness to defend them. But this warning went unheeded and the government confirmed its decision to withdraw HMS Endurance as part of Knott's defence review. Carrington was to resign as Foreign Secretary in the wake of the Argentine invasion of the Falklands. Now Simon, moving on to uh, events on the home front of that year, the civil disturbances of 1981 are probably among the most high profile and shocking events that people remember from that year. How are they represented in the files? That's right. Initially focused in Brixton, South London in April 1981, the disturbances spread to inner city areas across England particularly in early July. And the remarkable feature of the Prime Minister's file which relates to the civil disturbances, Prem 19-484, is the compact narrative it provides of the disorder that year and the development of the government's reaction to those events. It begins with a short report from the Home Office on a police raid on the Black and White Cafe in the St Paul's area of Bristol in April 1980, which precipitated a fierce riot in that area. And it ends with reaction to official reports on the events of 1981, including the results of Lord Scarman's inquiry into the Brixton riots. The relations between the police and the community, particularly the black community, in the South London area were poor for some time. In No Such Thing as Society, a history of Britain in the 1980s, the author Andy McSmith attributes these poor relations partly to a clash of cultures the noise and vibrancy of Brixton apparently appearing to police to be suspiciously like a threat to law and order, an insufficiently racially mixed police force, high unemployment in inner city areas, particularly amongst black communities, and individual incidences of a perceived lack of concern for those communities. An example of the latter would be the failure of the government to send a message of condolence following the New Cross fire, which claimed 11 young lives at a party in January 1981. So what actually happened in Brixton in April of that year? Well, the riots were sparked when, writes McSmith, two policemen attempted to stop a black youth and noticed that he was injured. He escaped, but other officers stopped him, treated him for his injuries and demanded he tell them how he came to be wounded. The gathering crowd didn't believe the police protestations that they were applying first aid, instead believing they were preventing an injured person from receiving treatment. A running battle ensued, and by the next morning, baseless accusations that the police had caused the youth's injuries and that he had died had emerged. Wide-scale disorder broke out, with the Prime Minister stating that shops were looted, vehicles destroyed, and 149 police officers and 58 members of the public were injured. And what did the government make of the events in Brixton? Well, firstly, I think it's important to note that Margaret Thatcher didn't believe that the causes of the disorder were anything to do with government policy. She was asked in the Commons by Clinton Davis, a a Labour MP, about this, and she replied, If the Honourable Gentleman considers that unemployment was the only cause of the riots, I disagree with him. If he considers that it was the main cause of the riots, 
I disagree with him. Nothing that has happened with regard to unemployment would justify those riots. Clearly, though, there was a degree of shock in the cabinet about these events, which is somewhat represented in the Prem 19 stroke 484 file, by the quick decision to establish Lord Scarman's inquiry into the Brixton riots. Indeed, what follows later in April 1981 is a remarkably prescient report from the Home Office detailing what they consider to be the four main potential sources of civil disturbance in the forthcoming six to 12 months, which are economic and industrial issues, opposition to nuclear weapons and nuclear energy, Welsh and ex extreme Scottish nationalism, and racial issues and extreme right-wing activity. The last of these proved to be the case in South Hall, West London, on Friday the 3rd of July, when a group of white skinheads and a group of young Asians clashed and rioted and in which later Thatcher would claim the police quickly became the main victims. After a few weeks of relative calm, violence broke out in various inner city areas in early July. Did all of these fall under the racial issues banner? That's right. On the night following the South Hall race riots, Toxteton Liverpool witnessed an all-night battle between youths and police. On the next weekend, copycat disorder broke out in Mossside, Manchester, and to a lesser degree, Birmingham, Blackburn, Bradford, Derby, Hull, Leeds, Leicester, Preston and Wolverhampton. However, McSmith believes that of these, only Southall and Toxteth can be described alongside the earlier disorder in Brixton as race riots, with a toxic mix of high unemployment, bad housing, racial tension and hostility to police underlying the violence in these areas. Indeed, looking back into the Prem 19 stroke 484 file, we can see that while the government in 1981 may not have entirely agreed with this assessment, there was an understanding in the cabinet that the disturbances in Brixton and Toxteth differed in their nature to what happened in some other areas. For example, Home Secretary Willie Whitelaw, during a telephone conversation with the Prime Minister, transcribed copy of which is in the file, reports that Moss side differed to Toxteth as it was based in looting and hooliganism rather than confrontation with police. This awareness is further underlined by the conclusions of the cabinet meeting on Thursday, July the 9th, which can be found in cab 128, stroke 71. Here, the cabinet discussed, in the largely anonymised way that cabinet conclusions are provided, what they considered to be the causes of the disturbances, which included the number of West Indians with no loyalty to society resorting to crime, high unemployment, parents failing to exert adequate control over children, and an alarmingly widespread lack of moral sense, which was apparently exemplified by looting and toxicity by middle-aged white residents. And what possible courses of action did the government consider to try and bring a halt to the riots? Well, that telephone conversation between the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary, Willie Whitelaw, on July the 11th, provides a neat summary of the initial thoughts of what government could do, as well as underlining the general tone of communication in the file, one of shock, which perhaps reflects the concern in society as a whole. Whitelaw and Thatcher discussed the need to ensure that police had flexible powers of arrest and that offenders should face early trials, that police had necessary equipment including water cannon, protective helmets and baton rounds, and that it may be necessary to provide army camps to hold offenders on remand given the overcrowding of prisons. Furthermore, Whitelaw is adamant that the use of troops could not be contemplated, believing instead that police should be properly equipped and even armed before such a step was taken. This in itself, though, isn't altogether surprising. 
White law and Thatcher are undoubtedly clear that ensuring social disintegration is minimal and that law and order are maintained is a primary concern. At the same time, though, they recognise that it is of paramount importance that the final frontier of a stable society, namely the line before the army is deployed on its own streets, is not penetrated. However, the record of Mrs Thatcher's late-night visit to New Scotland Yard on the night of Saturday the 11th sheds further light on what the riots meant for the government and for longer-term policing strategies in Britain. I understand that the police uh, provided a list of equipment that they were asking for to deal with the rioters, and what did they ask for exactly? Having been briefed by the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Sir David McNee, on the events in Brixton and Southall, the Prime Minister was then provided with a list of equipment he believed his force required. While some of these were somewhat extraordinary, a so-called heli-telly, a helicopter with cameras on it, the aforementioned water cannon, baton rounds, and also CS gas. What is more striking is his request for riot shields, protected vehicles, fire-resistant clothing, protective headgear, and longer truncheons than the standard issue. Because what this illustrates is a force attempting to deal with mass civil unrest with clearly inadequate equipment. But rather than being a criticism of, of a lack of preparedness, this shows what a surprise it was for the government to have to deal with such widespread disorder, and how for the first time in living memory it had to consider the use of such equipment and force to keep the peace on the British mainland. Indeed, Mrs Thatcher summarised the Cabinet meeting of the 9th of July in Cab 128-71 by saying, what had already happened was a matter of great concern and might prove a watershed in British political life. Did the government consider changing any legislation? Well, alongside the discussions for quick prosecutions and improved equipment, the possibility for amending legislation was indeed considered by the Cabinet, none of which was more interesting than the mooted reintroduction of the 1714 Riot Act, legislation that was formally repealed in 1973. A revived Riot Act would essentially mean that following an announcement of a state of riot, probably by a chief constable or another senior policeman, accompanied by a magistrate, the area in question would then be cordoned off with people who did not leave deemed offenders. In the cabinet meeting of the 9th of July, again see cab 128-71, Willie Whitelaw adds that anyone found on the streets once the statutory time from the reading of the proclamation had expired, including press and radio and television reporters, would be guilty of an absolute offence. Ultimately though, the cabinet decided against the reintroduction of the Riot Act, with Whitelaw stating in the following week's cabinet meeting on July the 16th, following discussion with Lord Scarman, that legislation of this kind would be a mistake. And I think to summarise, the narrative of the civil disturbances that Prem 19-484 provides us, ending as it does with further reports of those tumultuous weeks in the spring and summer, is one which shows a country which has changed decisively. From the brief notes which describes the disorder at the Black and White Cafe in Bristol in 1980, to the full and proper inquiries into the events of 1981, and indeed the decision to send Secretary of State for Environment Michael Heseltine to investigate the underlying causes of disturbances in Merseyside, via the requests of previous unheard of and now commonplace police equipment, this file shows how much the civil disturbances of 1981 changed the discourse in government, community relationships and policing strategies across the country. So Mark, what sort of impact did the riots have on the government in political terms? They caused deep worry 
and the going was already very tough for the government in many ways. From January onwards in the files, we see Bernard Ingham, the Prime Minister's press secretary, sending a series of memos to the PM describing the government's problems in dramatic terms. In Prem 19 stroke 423, he warns of the dangers of a manifestly divided and warring cabinet. In Prem 19 stroke 424, we see his concerns come to a head in a hard-hitting and very gloomy memo on the 8th of July, referring to the explosion of urban riots. Where next, he says. He also refers to the imminent Warrington by-election and rising unemployment figures. A further problem for the government was a civil service pay strike involving a series of walkouts in the case of some departments and one-day strikes. This ran from the beginning of March to the end of July. And July was patently a very difficult month for the government. John Campbell wrote that the shock of the riots rang alarm bells well beyond the ranks of the acknowledged wets, sparking a new wave of calls for a change of direction, a change of rhetoric, or even, failing that, a change of leader. The wets did not make any coordinated challenge to the Conservative leadership. Despite coded, and some not so coded, speeches from some of them criticising the government's approach to the economy, they seemed to make little difference to the direction of travel. However, after Howe's March budget, which took them by surprise, the wets won a concession that the broad lines of economic strategy could be discussed in Cabinet in advance. At a meeting on the 23rd of July, the Cabinet considered a memorandum by the Chancellor of the Exchequer on tax and expenditure. Further cuts in spending were being proposed for 1982-83. Most of the Cabinet expressed disagreement with this approach. In her memoirs, The Downing Street Years, Margaret Thatcher described this as one of the bitterest arguments on the economy or on any subject than I can ever recall taking place at Cabinet during my Premiership. And is there an account of this meeting in the newly released Cabinet papers? Yes. The conclusions of this meeting are recorded in Cap 128-72. stroke As usual with Cabinet conclusions, these are not verbatim minutes. The reported comments are anonymous. However, they are revealing concerning the depths of the disagreements in Cabinet. A point was made about the hopelessness and despair of Merseyside and a view was expressed that the tolerance of society was now stretched near to its limit. A minister felt that it was essential to take new and constructive action urgently. A freeze on pay increases was suggested, something that Margaret Thatcher would not have approved of. Another point made was that many people were now far more worried by the problems of unemployment than by levels of tax. The Prime Minister promised further discussion in the autumn. However, there was to be no repeat of such a heated debate. The composition of the Cabinet was significantly altered by a September reshuffle. Can you tell me a bit more about the reshuffle? Yes. On the 14th of September, the Prime Minister removed Christopher Soames, the Lord President, Mark Carlyle, Secretary of State for Education and Science, and Ian Gilmore, the Lord Privy Seal. 
Also, James Pryor was moved from employment to Northern Ireland. The reshuffle was extensive and there were particularly significant changes with the arrivals of Nigel Lawson at the Department of Energy, Norman Tevitt, who replaced Pryor at the Department of Employment, and Nicholas Ridley as Financial Secretary to the Treasury. As historian Kenneth Morgan wrote, the centre of gravity of the Cabinet had shifted markedly to the right. Even so, a significant element of the wets remained in the Cabinet, as Morgan points out. So it's fair to say it was a very difficult year for the government? Yes, you can certainly detect from looking at the files just how beleaguered Margaret Thatcher and her supporters felt at times during 1981. As I mentioned earlier, by implementing a deflationary budget in the teeth of a recession, Thatcher and Howe were going against the mainstream economic orthodoxy of the time and a good deal of flack came their way as a result. A Sunday Times leader of the 9th of February was headlined, Wrong Mrs Thatcher, Wrong, 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 and challenged a set of her economic pronouncements one by one. The file Prem 19-423 shows that this caused some concern and consternation at number 10. On July the 15th, the Prime Minister is reported as saying that almost every newspaper, with the notable exception of the Daily Mail, was now attacking the government's economic policies. That's from Prem 19-441. Bernard Ingham struck a happier note in a memo dated July the 31st, which can be found in Prem 19 stroke 424. He says, contrary to all expectations, we have ended July and entered recess on a higher rather than a lower note. He states, the triumph of the royal wedding has been a national tonic. He is referring, of course, to the marriage of the Prince of Wales and the Lady Diana Spencer on the 29th of July. But despite this happier interlude, the sense within government of being up against it persisted throughout the year. Even though progress was being made in the war against inflation, but also unemployment did continue to soar. Lord Helsham, the Lord Chancellor, wrote to the PM on the 16th of October. He said, I am deeply concerned by the bitterness of our critics. Whilst generally supportive, he felt that the government could do a better job in terms of making its case. Another challenge for the Conservative government was posed by the Social Democratic Party, the SDP, which had been formed in March after the Limehouse Declaration had been issued by the Gang of Four back in February. That's Roy Jenkins, David Owen, Bill Rogers and Shirley Williams, who had split from the Labour Party. As Kenneth Morgan has written, for much of 1981 and early 1982, the Social Democrats seemed to carry all before them. The STP formed an alliance with the Liberal Party and both parties agreed to fight elections by standing down in each other's favour. By-election success for the alliance came in October with Croydon North West, that was Bill Pitt for the Liberal Party, and then in November the STP enjoyed massive success at a by-election in Crosby Liverpool, when Shirley Williams overturned a Conservative majority of 19,000 and won the seat with an SDP majority of 5,000. 
By the end of 1981, the SDP Liberal Alliance was riding high in the national opinion polls. It was yet another factor adding to the woes of the Conservative government at this time. The difficulties for the Thatcher government were at their peak in July 81, around the time of the riots and those cabinet arguments. Um, this is when Secretary of State for the Environment Michael Hesseltine was sent to Merseyside in the aftermath of the Toxteth riots. Was this purely a cosmetic move, Simon, or in reaction to the civil disorder of that year? Well, I think the important point to remember when considering the deployment of Hesseltine in Liverpool in late July 1981 is that he had long been involved with the development of policies designed to tackle inner city deprivation and attempts to initiate enterprise in those areas. Indeed, the first of the files this year uh, concerning regional development policy, Prem 19 stroke 576, begins in July 1980 and actually refers to conversations from 1979. And this point is further underlined by Hesseltine's announcement on the 23rd of July 1980, exactly a year before he was deployed in Merseyside, of the intention to create four enterprise zones in Gateshead and Newcastle, Salford and Trafford, the Isle of Dogs and Liverpool. Discussions about the establishment of these enterprise zones and urban development corporations, UDCs, continued throughout the early part of 1981. By March of that year, Heseltine was even raising the possibility of a minister for Merseyside, although there was cabinet opposition to this, primarily because they would be pressured to do the same elsewhere. The events of July 1981 in Toxteth, which were quite terrible, with CS gas used, 468 police officers injured, 500 people arrested and at least 70 buildings destroyed, caused an acceleration of these developments, and it seems that Heseltine was personally invested in them. So how did Toxteth change that regional policy? Um, a note from Michael Heseltine to the Prime Minister dated July 10th, 1981, which can be found in Prem 19-577, sets out what the Secretary of State for the Environment suggests what the government should do regarding civil disorder. Namely, this is to show evidence of concern without raising expensive and unfulfillable expectations, back the maintenance of law and order, even if it is not the only issue involved, address the acute problems on Merseyside without raising demands elsewhere, and the translation of desire in government to improve coordination of programmes and expenditure and avoid conflicts of vested interest in Whitehall. He suggests that the Prime Minister sends him to Merseyside for two weeks to deal with the urgent issues and the opportunities that exist. This essentially provides Heseltine with a case study and a chance to accelerate the implementation of his policy. The deployment of Heseltine in Liverpool is eventually agreed to by Thatcher and announced to Cabinet colleagues at the Cabinet meeting on the 16th of July, see Cab 128-71. However, it is not perhaps quite on the terms that Heseltine initially would have wished. A note on the meeting he had with the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary Willie Whitelaw on July 14th, which is found in Prem 19-577, suggests that he wanted to not only use uh, the regional offices of other departments, industry and employment for example, but also that he needed to be able to spend money to clear and develop derelict land, otherwise he feared that governmental action would be deemed cosmetic and inefficient. Thatcher herself, though, believed that large amounts of money were already being spent on the region and that better value for money was required. Indeed, she had previously stated that on her trip to Toxteth earlier that week, she observed that for all that was said about deprivation, the housing there was by no means the worst in the city. 
Rather than complain about boredom while litter collected on the streets and grass was left untended, Thatcher believed that what was clearly lacking was a sense of pride and personal responsibility, something which the state can easily remove but almost never give back. Were cabinet concerns only restricted to uh, the extra expenditure? Actually, cabinet concerns also stretched to the suitability of sending Heseltine to Merseyside. And even more so, those uh, concerns weren't actually just restricted to cabinet. A handwritten note from the cabinet secretary, Sir Robert, Robert Armstrong, to Prime Minister's advisor Clive Whitmore, lists his concerns, including that Heseltine is distrusted and disliked in the local authority world. Although he mentions Heseltine's apparently customary zest and panache, Armstrong questions whether he would be credible and effective in balancing this new Merseyside minister role uh, with his continued responsibilities at the Department of Environment. Indeed, Armstrong goes on to suggest either Jim Pryor or Lord Soames for the role, two of the cabinet's so-called wets. Armstrong is aware of the drawbacks of nominating either of those two, though, highlighting the political significance of appointing Pryor, who was Secretary of State for Employment at this point, and the, quote, patrician and gubernatorial image of Soames. Thatcher, of course, agreed to Heseltine's request. Uh, what did he experience when he went to Toxteth? Well, in what eventually became two and a half weeks on Merseyside, Heseltine met with many local residents, politicians and community groups, including one particular meeting with the Liverpool 8 Defence Committee, which he has previously described as ill-tempered and as though we were sitting on a powder keg. The result of his time there was the draft report of, on his findings entitled It Took a Riot, which can be found in Prem 19-578. He describes how the title of the report was the comment he heard most, that residents believed it took the visceral and visual civil disturbances in Toxteth to capture the attention of the government. His report, delivered on August the 13th, advocated the presence of a minister in UK regions, a flexibility of policy depending on the region, including additional resources, and the abolishment of metropolitan counties to aid the development of the UDCs. The reaction to Heseltine's deployment and report from some of the cabinet and the Prime Minister's advisers was less than welcoming. A note from the Chancellor Geoffrey Howe to the Prime Minister warns against committing too much to Liverpool and what he called the relatively stony ground on the banks of the Mersey while other areas like the West Midlands and the northeast of England were promising. Indeed, Howe was later even less forgiving of what he described as Heseltine's godfather role in Liverpool by saying the report did not place issues in the context of a longer-term strategy either for Merseyside or for inner cities in general or for the economy as a whole. The Prime Minister's policy advisor, John Hoskins, is even more scathing claiming in the notes which can be found in Prem 19-578 that Heseltine's report is an inadequate basis for action as it lacks causal analysis. Indeed, Hoskins provides a counter-report on September the 3rd in which he claims to deal with actual problem-solving and that many of the mooted solutions from Heseltine, like providing money to local authorities, would lead just to a rehash of previous attempts. The Prime Minister herself provides a neat conclusion to the discussions in the summary on September the 9th, which stated that Heseltine should stay on Merseyside, perhaps for a year, that there was no consensus that cabinet ministers should be designated to other conurbations, and that it should not be possible for Heseltine to be involved in the police situation on Merseyside. 
She also added that it might be unfair to give Merseyside a minister and none to other conurbations. So what can we learn from Heseltine's time on Merseyside in the summer of 1981? Well, we can conclude from the files that relate to Heseltine's time on Merseyside that his interest and involvement in the area and with wider issues of urban regeneration was established long before the civil disturbances in Toxteth in July of that year. However, his attempts to elicit further expenditure on, on the region were largely dismissed by Cabinet. We can take from Chancellor Howe's assertion that Heseltine failed to place the report within the context of a longer-term strategy, that there was still a tension between those advocating spending money to solve problems like deprivation on Merseyside, while cutting government expenditure was a policy priority. Ultimately, regeneration would take place in Liverpool and other enterprise zones, but the early difficulties as Thatcherism was formed can be seen here too. Now Mark, one of the most significant stories of 1981 was the hunger strike by Irish Republican prisoners in Northern Ireland's Mays Prison. Can you explain a bit about the background to that? Yes, sure. The 1981 hunger strike by Irish Republican prisoners in the Mays Prison began on the 1st of March when Bobby Sands, IRA jail commander, refused food. He threatened to fast to death unless he and his inmates won concessions over prison conditions. The strikers had five key demands, the right not to wear a prison uniform, the right not to do prison work, the right to associate freely with other prisoners, the right to visit some parcels once a week, and the right to restore remission lost on sentences during the protest. These concessions would be tantamount to granting the prisoners special category or political status and this had been phased out by the British government in 1976. Bobby Sands was elected MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone in April and a propaganda battle was fought across the world's media but Mrs Thatcher appeared determined not to give in to the prisoners demands. In the House of Commons on May the 5th she declared to concede political status would be to grant a license to kill innocent men, women and children, and that is why we shall never concede that status. Bobby Sands died the same day, May the 5th, as Thatcher made those comments. In the following two weeks, three other hunger strikers died and there was the strong likelihood of further deaths. The Catholic Church made an attempt to intervene. And what can we learn from the newly released documents about this episode? Well, one of the most significant documents is the minutes of a cabinet meeting on the 2nd of July, at the end of which there was an informal discussion on the situation relating to Northern Ireland. And an account of this meeting can be found in the confidential annexes cab 128-72. This is an interesting document for several reasons. There was concern at increasingly disturbing signs of an erosion of international confidence in British policy in the light of the continuing hunger strike at the Mays prison. It is stated that the underlying problem was becoming increasingly clear, that the hunger strikers' real aim was not to alter prison conditions but to bring about a British withdrawal from the province and the unification of Ireland. The Cabinet then goes on to discuss attitudes to Irish unity in the context 
of the current British debate in Northern Ireland. It is stated that, in Britain, there was already a widespread feeling in favour of British withdrawal from Northern Ireland and that many people in Britain now believe that a settlement of the complex problems of the area would be more easily reached by the Irish on their own and that continued British involvement could only mean the futile sacrifice of further British lives. This sounds startling, but really it amounts, it amounts to the Cabinet thinking aloud about the state of British public opinion. In the next paragraph of the account of the meeting, all the very weighty negatives about withdrawal are expressed, and I quote, Whatever the state of British opinion, withdrawal would not be an easy proposition for any government. Civil war and massive bloodshed were likely to be the immediate result in Northern Ireland, and the trouble could easily spread to the large Irish communities in some major cities in Great Britain. Also, the present guarantee to the province was enshrined in statute, so new legislation would be required. Do we gain any other insights into the situation from the files? The Cabinet also considered whether the hunger strikers could be kept alive by compulsory feeding. The account of the meeting states, and I quote, if done intravenously by modern methods, this should not involve the violent scenes associated with the forcible feeding of hunger striking prisoners in the past. The ministers go on to weigh up all the factors involved in this, acknowledging that the decision taken previously by the Labour government to abandon forcible feeding had been taken with the full support of the Conservative opposition and had been welcomed at home and abroad. Nevertheless, they felt, the possibility of intravenous feeding deserved serious study. It's another interesting insight from the Cabinet records. And how did the story unfold? In July, the government did make some negotiating moves, offering some flexibility in regard to some of the demands if the hunger strike was called off. But a deal was not reached. Ten inmates starved to death during the hunger strike, which came to an end on the 3rd of October 81, when a group of families announced that they would authorise medical treatment to prevent the deaths of their relatives. Three days later, Jim Pryor, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, announced a series of partial concessions to the prisoners on clothing and on other demands. Many files from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office have also been released. Did any particular stories catch your eye? Well, one of the most dramatic international news stories of 1981 was Israel's bombing of a nuclear facility near Baghdad in Iraq on the 7th of June. This airstrike, the world's first against a nuclear plant, shocked the international community as it came from out of the blue, and this shock and consternation is well captured in a Foreign and Commonwealth Office file, FCO 8-4177. This file includes a particularly dramatic telegram dated the 7th of June, to the FCO, from Sir Nicholas Henderson, the British ambassador in the US, who was with Caspar Weinberger, the US Defence Secretary, when the news came through of Israel's strike. I quote, Weinberger, who happened to be with me when the White House phoned him, has told me very privately of something that may well be public knowledge by the time you receive this. The Israelis have used F-15s and special guided bombs to attack without warning or notice to the Americans 
the nuclear installation in Iraq. It has been completely destroyed. There is thought to be a contamination danger. The Americans do not know if French or Italian technicians have been hit. Weinberger says he thinks Begin must have taken leave of his senses. He is much disturbed by the Israeli action and possible consequences. So French or Italian technicians are mentioned as having worked at the site? Yes. The nuclear plant at Ozarak was French built and there was a team of French and possibly some Italian technicians based at the site. Israel explained its reasons for the attack. It believed that the plant was designed to make nuclear weapons for use against Israel and that the reactor was close to completion. The operation was carried out on a Sunday to minimise the chances of casualties to the technicians, but it was reported that one French citizen had died in the raid. FCO 8-4177 contains a telegram dated the 8th of June which gives this account of events as reportedly given by Recalve, the French ambassador in Baghdad. I quote, A small French team of engineers was ending work on the reactor building at 18.30 hours local time on the 7th of June. Two or three aircraft came out of the setting sun and bombed the plant which is heavily protected by missiles, anti-aircraft guns and ziggurat-shaped earthworks from high altitude. There was no warning of any kind. Much damage, so far unspecified, was caused and one Frenchman is reported missing. Telegrams such as these are dramatic, vivid and carry a strong sense of immediacy. Israel's attack was widely condemned at the time. Also on the international scene, uh, Ronald Reagan was elected President of the United States in November 1980 and inaugurated in January 81. Did the files give us any insights into how he was perceived by the Prime Minister and other government officials? I think the files show that Margaret Thatcher had confidence in Reagan right from the start. In Prem 19-471, there are transcripts of a dinner conversation between Thatcher and German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt in which they discuss the newly elected President Reagan. And Thatcher is recorded as stating that he has been greatly underestimated and it would be a very serious mistake if we antagonised him. Sir Nicholas Henderson, British ambassador to the US, made this assessment of Reagan in his annual review for 1980, which is contained in FCO 82 stroke 1087. Recognition must also be made of Reagan's good humour and beguiling voice, instruments that he played upon with charm and stamina to silence successfully those trying to make out that he was nothing more than a trigger-happy, reactionary lightweight. It's a great early tribute to Reagan the Great Communicator, who became renowned for his cosy fireside chat style. On the other hand, a letter from J.S. Wall at the British Embassy, dated the 24th of June 81, which is included in FCO 82 stroke 1086, says that Reagan's answers at a press conference were awkward and he was often at a loss for words. He says that Reagan hasn't grasped the complexity of foreign policy issues and doesn't do his homework as well as he should. This was Reagan's first press conference 
following the assassination attempt by John Hinckley Jr. on the 30th of March, 81. One has to weigh up the different assessments, like any historian evaluating material. So Mark, can you sum up the historical significance of 1981 and uh, why these new releases in particular are important? Well, 1981 was a pivotal year for Margaret Thatcher and what became known as Thatcherism. And it's illuminating to read the judgments on this year by reading the published works of the key players. Bernard Ingham wrote that during 1981, Margaret Thatcher was tried, sorely tested and did not buckle. Nigel Lawson wrote that in the course of time, the 1981 budget came to be seen as a political equivalent of the Battle of Britain, the Thatcher government's finest hour. You'll recall that earlier I mentioned the letter to the Times from 364 economists criticising the strategy behind the budget. For Nigel Lawson, their timing's exquisite. The economy embarked on a prolonged phase of vigorous growth almost from the moment that the letter was published. And he cites successes in the battle against inflation, a hard-fought battle which Lawson claims was being won by the end of 1982 when inflation fell to 5%. It all depends who you read on the subject, of course. For Ian Gilmore, what he calls the monetarist experiment was dogmatic and disastrous. He writes that, despite Britain's possession of North Sea oil, the recession was deeper and more prolonged here than in countries which were dependent on imported fuel. And he clearly attributes much of the blame for this at the door of the monetarists. The judgment on the Thatcher government strategy are for historians and anyone interested in modern history to make. The National Archives makes available the raw materials of history for students of history to sift through so that they can weigh up all the evidence. Through releases such as these, we can piece together a detailed narrative as we see events unfold through the eyes of the Prime Minister and her government. The files help us understand just how tough the going was for the government in 81, with the political fallout from Geoffrey Howe's tough budget, difficult decisions on expenditure cuts and soaring unemployment. On top of all this, the riots in Brixton in April and the further explosion of riots in July caused deep worry in government, as we can see from the records. We also see how the hunger strike impacted on the cabinet. We also gain fascinating insights into the style and personality of Margaret Thatcher from the comments written in her own hand, which vividly demonstrate the strength of her convictions and her resolution in the face of very difficult problems. Interest in Margaret Thatcher and her legacy has probably never been higher, shown by the interest surrounding the new film, The Iron Lady, starring Meryl Streep. The 1981 releases by the National Archives are therefore very timely. Thank you Mark and thank you Simon. A selection of these files are available on the National Archives website at www.nationalarchives.gov.uk. This podcast was recorded at the National Archives in Kew on the 21st of December 2011. Copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.